Quiet on the set. From the studios of the Modern School of Film, welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo, and over the next hour together, we'll explore where culture meets craft. Today on Murmur, I'm with author Chuck Polinick. The film Fight Club turns 20. Welcome. Welcome to Murmur. Welcome back to Murmur. Robert Malazzo here with you. I am the founder of the Modern School of Film with you on Murmur Radio. Murmurradio.com is the website. Social handles at MSF Murmur, Twitter, Instagram. If you would like any time access to the show, subscribe to the show, download the show, fight about the show, <laughs> iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio. If you have a subject you would like me to match with a guest on the show, email me directly, murmurradio at gmail.com. I will match your subject with a guest, and I will give you full credit. You can hit me as hard as you can. No, sorry. I take that back. <laughs> but you can listen. You can come on. You will get full credit, whatever you want, except that hitting thing <laughs> you'll get. Welcome to Murmur. Welcome back to Murmur. Good to be back. Not too long ago, I was invited to Cologne, Germany to do a talk with any guests of my choosing. It was a festival of comics and film and culture, and the guy who played Shazam was there. Um, anyway, <laughs> I immediately thought, well, Fight Club. Fight Club turns 20 this year. Not the book, but the film. So I thought it would be interesting to marry these two ideas and invite Chuck Polinick to Cologne with me to do a talk about the 20-year mark, the birthday party of the film that has everything. Well, it has soap. Um, <laughs> it's a film I love, it's a film I've loved, and when I've loved a film for so long now, since the 90s, and I say that because so few films have come out of that vortex, that post-1999 vortex of films with as much resonance and reverberation 20 years later as Fight Club. 2000 comes close, Dancer in the Dark and In the Mood for Love, but that's a different story for a different day. Uh, Fight Club uh, was on the table and Chuck was so open with his thoughts. I'm gonna play that for you today. 
little exposition. Fight Club was actually a short story. It was written in 1995 as a seven-page short story. It was expanded and published as a novel in 1996. The film was made in 1990, let's say, eight. So that two-year jog, that's a jog for a developmental process. It's more than a jog. It's a sprint, actually. For a book to be turned into a movie two years is not bad these days. Uh, we'll ask Chuck about that, or I did ask Chuck about that. I asked about his involvement in the film. I asked about his relationship with David Fincher, his thoughts about Brad Pitt's performance, Ed Norton, Helena Bottom Carter. I left out Meatloaf, unfortunately. I should have got to that. Um, but it was a great opportunity. 1999, thinking about some of the films that came out and what was happening in 1999. I always tell my students, my film students, if you want to start film study independently of some bad teacher uh, or a good teacher. Look at the decades, uh, 89, 99, and the beginnings, 1970, 1980, 2000, because a lot of those films have what's come before. They're a repository of what's come before and are kind of projecting out something new out of this cultural Play-Doh spaghetti maker we call film or culture or something. And Fight Club is no different. I still think of the film. I think of the reverberations of the film. And Fincher was on the scene and Seven had been made. Aliens 3 had been made. Brad Pitt was trying to cut some new path as an actor. Ed Norton was rising. Helena Bottom Carter was always steady. So it was a really cool moment in time. I saw it in LA in Hollywood. That's the first time I saw it in 1999. I talked about that with Chuck. I'll leave that for the talk. He also talks about his thoughts about going to films before Fight Club became a film and how Fincher is a force and Fight Club ultimately is a film sort of sort of rejuvenated Chuck's love for what he loved about movies. We'll talk a little bit about that. But again, 1999, you know, Matrix, um, being John Malkovich, Toy Story 2, uh, that last one you can leave off, but a lot of those films had some interesting baggage and we're trying to say something interesting. We may not be able to say those things anymore. So I like circling that year, 20 years later, I'm actually gonna teach a class on that year. 1999 Columbine, Y2K, a lot of angst in the profile of films and of people and of writers, and Chuck is no different. A lot of personal upheaval at the time for him, so bundle it together in this package, this brown paper package, like the DVD, like the Blu-ray of Fight Club, and you get Fight Club. I wanted to limit our talk to the film and not to the book, although the book is always knocking on the door of the film. Chuck has some interesting thoughts about that. He also has a really interesting thought on whose words are in the film and the whole meta wraparound of his life and his friends and what was going on at the time. So in and of itself, aside from us looking at 1999 and films at that time, I could only imagine what Chuck thinks about that time. Luckily, we're gonna. <laughs> uh, spending time in Cologne with Chuck was great. He's such a good guy. And I wanna do more of these for no reason at all with Chuck. One small bit of exposition just to sharpen. Chuck in the talk references something called the Cacophony Society. Cacophony Society was a group of sort of cultural, let's call them agents, provocateurs, agent provocateurs. Chuck was part of the Portland chapter. And out of the real thing of the Cacophony Society became Project Mayhem within Fight Club. Um, so he's gonna reference that a couple of times. That's a little bit of context for that. Oh, one thing about the audio you're about to hear, you know, we were in this huge room when we did this talk, a huge auditorium, like a thousand seats, and around us, around the auditorium, in other rooms, there were similarly large rooms doing large, loud things. So what you're going to hear, you know, when you have these large rooms competing with sound, you're going to hear a lot of reverberation. I have taken some of the reverberation out as much as I can without corrupting anything, but what you do hear, you're going to hear whispers of reverberation, and I always say that because you're 
almost going to hear like ghosts, like a poltergeisty and swirling audio. It's because those are the trace elements of the reverberation of other rooms. Don't be alarmed. I actually think it's kind of cool. Um, it would be cool to do a poltergeist talk in this way with Joe Beth Williams and Craig T. Nelson. But anyway, so that's what you're going to hear, the swirling poltergeists of other rooms. Oh, one other bon bouche I wanted to place in this talk, if I may. <laughs> Not too long ago, I did a talk with Charles Thompson. You may know Charles Thompson as Black Francis, a.k.a. Frank Black, probably most well known as the lead singer of the Pixies. Um of course, for those of you who love Fight Club and may even know it anecdotally or from a YouTube clip, the end of the film where you see Fox itself imploding, wouldn't it be nice? When you see Fox itself imploding, you hear the Pixies, where is my mind? It's an incredible moment of cinema. So when I spoke to Charles, when I spoke to Black Francis, of course, in addition to the Pixies, I wanted to ask him about that moment, what he thought is a big film lover himself. So that's in there. It's a birthday party, 20 years. Happy birthday, Fight Club. <laughs> what did you bring? us. <laughs> Don't say so. <laughs> Enjoy uh, Cologne, Germany. Chuck Polinick and I talking about Fight Club. 20 years. Enjoy. Stop. Good, good, good. Tonight's guest studied for a moment or two cultural anthropology on his way to making music history. He told me last night, though, that the classes that he found the most fun were the cinema classes. We'll ask him if he feels that way in about an hour. Please welcome to the Modern School of Film, Professor Charles Thompson, Frank Black. I'd be loath to not mention the ending of Fight Club, which is Where's My Mind? I mean, that to me, I'm not just saying this because you're here, it gives me goosebumps even now watching it. When you watch, is it like an out-of-body thing? When you, Fight Club, I'm assuming you saw the end of it. Yeah, yeah. What did you think it. when the whole Fincher, I don't know if Fincher approached you or what happened, but when, when at the end, where, when Where Is My Mind comes on and the buildings are coming down, that's, that's it's beautiful. What was your experience with Fight Club and Where Is My Mind? Well, I, mean, I think that any, like anybody else who liked that movie, I liked the movie, you know, uh, when I saw it, and uh, it was nice that uh, our song was in it, but uh, I was kind of more caught up in the, my cinema experience, you know, uh, so I think I was able to kind of compartmentalize, and, and I, didn't, I didn't jump up and go, it's me! <laughs> yeah, but, but, uh, <laughs> we but, do that, though. I mean, we're... I mean, but, you know, uh, I, mean, I kind of got a grin out of it, you know, but really, I was... <laughs> I was engaged in the film, and so yeah. when it happened, it, it was still just kind of washing over me like everybody else. I mean, it's a great moment in the film, and it's really uh, because it's a great moment in the film, not because the song is there, the song works, but I think probably a lot of songs could have worked in that same spot. But he picked the right kind of song, I suppose, for his, uh, his uh, montage there. Yeah, it's a great moment. Und diesen Talk übernimmt ein sehr geschätzter Kollege, und zwar Rob Lasso from the Modern School of Film. Please welcome him on stage. Rob. Thank you. Uh, welcome. It's an honor to be here in Cologne. This is my first time. It is an absolute honor. My name is Robert Malazzo. I run a school in the United States called the Modern School of Film. I get to travel throughout the world to discuss the things I love with the people I respect. You're actually in the Modern School of Film right now. So why are we here today? We're at a, a birthday party today. Um, today's 
a birthday is about something we cannot talk about. So instead of not talking about it, I'll talk around it. The first time I saw Fight Club, it was my first time in Hollywood in Los Angeles. Um, I was wandering around like any good visitor to Los Angeles, and I saw a movie theater that was showing movies for $2 American. And I saw this movie that kind of changed my brain. It felt like I was seeing it in a pornographic movie theater. The movie was Fight Club, and I was right. It was all sort of beautifully pornographic at the time. 20 years later, it continues to inspire us. Former president of the United States, Bill Clinton, said it's a good movie, Fight Club, but it's a bit nihilistic. I take that as a compliment. I wonder if our guest does. Brad Pitt once said, this is the best movie I'll ever be in. 20 years later, Brad, you're actually right. Rupert Murdoch, who owns Fox Everything, said, what kind of sick human being makes a movie like Fight Club? I found one. Please welcome to discuss some postcards from the past to the Modern School of Film simulcast on Murmur Radio and to Cologne CCXP, Mr. Chuck Polinick. Good evening. Good evening. Guten Abend. So stick around for the German, come for the talk. You've been in Germany before. Have you been in Cologne before? Yeah, drei Bier, three or four times. Uh, welcome back. Thank you. Do you think of movies in terms of years? I, I always think this is an American idea, the 20th anniversary, the 40th anniversary. Does that mean something to you that Fight Club, the movie, is 20 years old? Books never stay in print for 20 years anymore. If you talk about the, the book that was most popular 20 years ago, you might say The Celestine Prophecies, but try to find a copy of The Celestine Prophecy. And so it's amazing that uh, a book, much less a movie, is still existent 20 years and still in hardcover. So that's kind of a miracle. Before we start talking about the movie, I, I have a rule for us. Um, I know you like rules or dislike them, I can't tell. If I mention these words, in the book, but in the book, what about the book? I want you to punch me as hard as you can. Okay, well, I'll punch myself much like Edward Norton does. In 1999, before we start talking about Fight Club movies, we were talking about The Matrix, 1999, uh, Sixth Sense, 1999, Being John Malkovich, 1999. American Beauty. But you know what the big, big movie of 1999 was for three months straight, the top movie in America? The summer movie. I give. Double Jeopardy. Oh, was it a Morgan Freeman, Ashley Judd? Yes. Team up, okay. And no one remembers it. Wow. Well, see, but you, all these other movies are so much more memorable, but the movie that we were all battling against is almost completely forgotten now. What do you think that speaks to? You, know, you don't want to create in order to be liked. You want to create in order to be remembered because if you create something like Harold and Maude, which got mixed to very poor reviews, schlecht reviews, but they stayed in the cultural memory long enough that the culture came back around to liking these things, the culture will evolve and the culture will catch up. The trick is to stay in the cultural memory long enough to be there when you can be appreciated. Are those films ahead of the time? 
the Zeitgeist. That's my only German, by the way. Are they ahead of the time or, or are we behind the time? Harold and Maude was reclaimed. Eraserhead was claimed by midnight moviegoers. Are we behind those things or are they ahead of us? Because I'm going to put Fight Club in that category as well. You know, it, it's so hard to say. Culture is always going to move forward and these things that have the ability to stay in our memory to be unresolved. Because they're unresolved, we have to talk to each other about them. And there's a, a literary anthropologist named Shirley Bryce Heath. And she says for a book or anything to become a classic, it has to build a community around itself, much in the way that the Tolkien books do, that people come together to talk about the Lord of the Rings as a subculture. And so these things have to be troubling enough that we have to go to one another and say, I saw this thing, I can't assimilate it myself. I'd like you to see it so that we can talk about it together. And in doing so, perhaps come to understand it. And so I think that that troubling nature is what makes things a classic. I love that. We don't deal well with trouble, but I think it's a, it's a fascinating state. I always tell my film school students, if you want to study cinema history, study the edges of decades. But I want to talk about, before the movie, about you in 1999, because there was some major upheaval personally. Do you recall the, the gears turning at the same time, movie and family upheaval? Do you recall those moments as linked or unlinked? Ah, the best of times, the worst of times. In May of 1999, Fight Club was supposed to be released in the spring, and then Columbine happened. And so they bumped the release to October, and around the time the movie was supposed to have been released, uh, my father was murdered. And so instead of going to the Fight Club premiere that spring, I went to uh, collect my father's dental x-rays so they could identify his body. And so much of my summer was spent working with the police to to find out who had killed him. It was a fantastic time of my life, but it was also a very sad time. Did it leaven the event of Fight Club? Did it defocus you? How do you centralize on, on your first movie? I'm gonna call it yours, although Brad Pitt called this movie Mr. Fincher's Opus. The process had been so long. So long and also so impossible because my editor had told me at the time that the book was optioned that only 2% of books get optioned for movies and of that 2%, only 2% ever go into production. So he said, do not get excited about this. It will never, ever happen. <laughs> and so I, I just, I had no expectation. So I really had no kind of uh, emotional attachment to it at the time. Um, it was nice that it was happening, but it was it's something that seemed so impossible that it was really hard to take Seriously. I, I read about your relationship to movies in the 80s, which were kind of interesting about the, the etiquette of seeing a movie had kind of like detracted you from even wanting to see a movie. Uh, were you not going to the movies? The time when I really grew to love movies was in the 70s, as a, you know, as a young adult, as a child. And so many of those movies were movies of romantic fatalism. The movies that we loved were The Bad News Bears, uh, the Rocky movies. Uh, Midnight Cowboy, They Shoot Horses, Don't They, uh, Saturday Night Fever. Everyone would go for this fantastic prize and then they would always be defeated and destroyed at the end. And so in a way that became my definition of a good movie. But then suddenly in the, in the 80s, movies became these very sort of happy sugar-coated things 
and I didn't, I didn't really enjoy them nearly as much because they seemed so, so destined. I hated that. I hated sitting through two hours of Forrest Gump jerking in my emotional wiener. It was such an obvious manipulation and it was so ham-handedly put together to make me feel good with little bites of exactly the right pieces of music. And I just felt uh, grossly manipulated. So I, I more or less gave up on movies. But when a David Fincher comes in the, the picture to make this movie, how did you feel? Did you feel skeptical? Did you feel go with the flow? Or did you feel kind of, I want to see what modern movies are like. What was that reaction? Seven was the thing that kind of redeemed my love of movies because Seven was one of those movies where people strive and strive and it had that romantic fatalistic ending that I loved so much from the 1970s. You know, Carrie, Carrie did not have a great ending, but it was a, one of those fantastic 70s movies. And so Seven kind of revived that dark ending again. Hmm. Did you ever think of writing the script? No. You know, it, uh, it took me so long to learn how to write a novel that the movie would still not be made if I was trying to learn how to write a script. Did you see it when it premiered at Venice? No, Fox would not pay for me to go to Venice. What? <laughs> no, I did not see it. Uh, by first-person accounts, the premiere was not a success. Can you tell us what the reaction was to the film at Venice? I'll throw a couple of things in, but tell me what, what the pigeons were telling you, <laughs> the flying pigeons about how the movie was received when it was first shown. Fincher said that, that primarily older men were standing up and shaking their fists at the screen and screaming, fascismos, fascist, bringing back fascism. And they were marching out. Wow. When they screened the movie for the head of publicity at Fox, he took Fincher aside and he was furious. And he just got in David's face and he was spitting mad. And he said, congratulations, thanks. Thanks a whole hell of a lot. You have made a movie with so much blood in it that no woman is ever gonna wanna see it. And you have made a movie with so much male nudity in it that no man is ever gonna see it. So, congratulations, you have made the impossible to sell movie, and now it's my problem. Thank you. Wow. So, Fincher, that's what Fincher went into with publicity, with promotion. Fincher also ended up saying that this movie was a dirty joke to Fox. I love dirty jokes. <laughs> you know, line me up for them. Um, the, the, the organizer of Venice walked out of the screening, and Pitt and Norton were in the balcony laughing and having a great time. And that's actually when Brad Pitt said to Ed, I'll never be in a movie as good as this, which is kind of amazing. I wouldn't agree because I think I like Brad Pitt so much more in movies like uh, 12 Monkeys. I mean, I think he's got some characterizations that are at least as strong, if not better, than, than Tyler Durden. Did you ever go see the making of the movie? I did. Number one, I, I knew that this was going to drive a wedge between me and my friends, that this was so out of their experience that our friendships were going to begin to erode. So I took as many as my friends as I could possibly get passes, and I took them all to as many of the, the shooting sequences as I, as I could so that it would, be a, it would be a joint event that we could talk about that would reinforce our friendship instead of destroying it. And I also knew that eventually I'd, I'd have to help promote this thing. And I would be asked if I had any stories about the making of the thing. 
so I should be there to witness it and, you know, have something to tell. Mm. Uh, so I was there quite a bit. You said something to me that photos weren't allowed, or at least photos were owned by Fox, or the sort of lack of candid photos. I find that striking 20 years later, because everyone's a photographer, apparently. Um, do you recall that, that sort of moratorium on, on revealing what was going on? Oh, it's... Uh, Oh, you know, Fincher can't hate me forever. I'll, Let's seal the deal. <laughs> David, David has such a bad, bad experience with Aliens 3 that uh, he kind of, he told me in private, he said, there's going to be no EPK on this. Ele electronic press kit. And that is essentially, pardon me, Chuck, a crew that follows around the action and does pre-planned interviews with the main players for promotional. You've seen them a thousand times. Go on. Yeah, and so there would not be no kind of marketing documentary made so that when it came time to promote the movie and bring it into the world, they would have to go to the principals, the actors, the director, in order to get the kind of marketing they needed. They couldn't just use this canned EPK material. So Fincher knew that the only leverage he had for the final cut was that if he was the only option they had for promotion, promoting it. So he wasn't gonna let them do any kind of EPK, so they would have to let him have his final cut so that he would help promote the movie. One thing this film did, it was one of the first, I hate the word, but viral marketing campaigns that was quashed. Uh, they had these interesting public service announcements. I don't know if you remember. And they're fascinating, but they're unshowable. At least Fox thought they were. The other thing the movie did it was one of the first what I would call Easter egg films. I don't know if you know that term colloquially. An Easter egg is when a film embeds information about itself in it. I think every other scene has a Starbucks cup in it. Some of the haikus that the narrator writes are the crew members' names as anagrams. So there was a kind of interesting wave the film was riding. Did Fincher go through you? Did he want you on his side for certain decisions? Anything in your memory? Early on, we, we talked about who would be the female character. And he said that the, the male casting pretty much had to be Brad Pitt and Edward Norton, because they were kind of the two farthest apart archetypes that were available in Hollywood at the time. And uh, the female character, at the time, Edward Norton was living with Courtney Love. And Courtney Love was really lobbying Art Linson for the part of Marla. And so Fincher felt she was too much the type and that they had to cast against type. So Fincher, his whole concept was that it had to be Helena Bonham Carter and she had to look exactly like Judy Garland did just before she died in London. So she had to have this ragged, gaunt look and her, her clothes had to be sort of once glamorous, but very degraded. Mm. And that's exactly how she looks. One ongoing battle that happened through the, the, through, through the whole movie was Edward Norton had just come off of American History X, where he got to do one of the final cuts. And he was very, very invested in having a lot of control over Fight Club. And he very much wanted the character to be very sympathetic and Fincher felt that making the character sympathetic would be just too much of a, uh, an easy out. And so they constantly battled over how sympathetic Edward's character should be. I don't know if that even answered your question. 
Well, not at all, not at all. But it, it, I'm teasing. You read my mind about Ed Norton a little bit because, and this isn't a, this isn't a condemnation; it's an observation that Edward does take a, a unique investment in films, even in the Hulk. I, I guess my point is that he and Fincher had these long talks about the tone. Uh, it seems like Ed wanted much more, of, or wanted a comedy from the jump. Uh, they talked about The Graduate as a reference. The last day of filming, I thought this was interesting related to you. Nor Ed Norton said that he and Brad Pitt stayed up till 4 a.m. listening to OK Computer. And later on, when Ed met Tom York of Radiohead, he said, that's funny, because when we tour now, we watch Fight Club on the bus. What do you think of that? You know, and he said, that's all we watch. There are a lot of narratives that model social models for women uh, and for a while there were maybe even too many there was the joy luck club there was the divine sister yaya sisterhood there was the sisterhood of the traveling pants uh there was a secret life of bees there was how to make an american quilt there were dozens of movies demonstrating to women how to come together and talk about their experience but for men, there was the Dead Poet Society. And it was about a bunch of guys that get together and to go underground and read poetry to each other. And that was about it in terms of social models for men to discuss their experience. And then Fight Club came out, which was the second social model movie for, for men. But it was about men who go underground and engage in this physical combat, consensual physical combat. So in a way, it was like the undead poet society. I read somewhere that you, that Pablo Honey, another Radiohead record, was kind of in your brain cells writing the early, early short story version of Fight Club. Is that apocryphal or true-ish? Yeah, I love the, especially the single Creep, which they no longer perform. Right. Uh, and I think I, I made it enough of a not secret that uh, they came forward and they did the uh, is, uh, incidental music for the movie Choke that was made from my fourth book. Yeah, so, yeah, thank you, Radiohead. <laughs> Wherever you are. Uh, when you first saw the film, what did you think? When I first saw the film, I was so used to the material, and the film was so faithful to the material that I was a little bit disappointed because I really wanted to see them take more liberties with it, to really mess with it and make it something entirely different. Uh, it was so, so known to me that I think I was like David Fincher the night of the premiere in Westwood in Los Angeles. Fincher knew the movie so well, he didn't even want to be there. He just walked around the neighborhood all night long. He walked around until everything was over with. Um, and so, I think I felt much the same way when I first saw the movie. I knew it so, so well that I couldn't even really see it. I, I would just see pages of my book. Well, that's a, the sort of meta question. You know, Jim Oles, very nice man, uh, wrote the screenplay. When you see the movie, are they Jim's words or your words? It's funny because they're not even my words. Uh, I've got a very good friend that I worked with from uh, Daimler Chrysler. Uh, Karsten Reinhardt, and he's from Stuttgart, and he studied English in London, and he had an English teacher who would always speak in cliches. And one day Karsten said, you know, how is this movie you saw? And his teacher said, 
It was an all singing, all dancing extravaganza. And so I instantly wrote that down. And so every time Karsten would say something funny or any of my friends would say something funny or insightful, I would write it down. I've got another friend, Ina Geber, and Ina would always say these fantastically thoughtful, funny things, none of which come to mind right now. <laughs> and so I would always write Ina's lines into the movie or into the book. So in a way, they were never my lines to start with. And in a way, I sort of saw the movie as this huge tribute to the funniest things that my friends had said through my 20s. You were an exquisite messenger. You were not your job. You're not how much money you have in the bank. You're not the car you drive. You're not the contents of your wallet. You're not your fucking khakis. You were the all singing, all dancing crap of the world. You know, Ina said there you the go. only <laughs> reason why people ask you about your Vulcanenda is so they can tell you about their Vulcanenda. Well, you were also the first person to tell us uh, to be weary of snowflakes, but we'll talk about that near the end a little bit. Fincher, he said he got on a plane to Bali when the, the film was released. He didn't even want to know. Did you, did you care about its midwifing, its, its being a progeny now? Or did you let it go? When did you let it go? Because you seem remarkably calm and I'm trying to make you uncalm. No, I'm not. But did you ever think about people seeing it, people not seeing it? It had a melancholy reception, which we'll talk about, but did you think about those things? When I left my job, my parents insisted that I keep my union membership. I had a, uh, I was a mechanics union. And so they said, you can leave your job, but you have to take a, a withdrawal from the union and keep your membership, keep your card. And so I always knew I could go back to Freightliner. <laughs> and that first weekend, the movie opened, I think it made 9.4 or 9.7 million, some pathetic sum, and it was third, no, it was second. It was second to Double Jeopardy. Okay. I called the producer, Art Bell, Ross Bell, Ross Bell, on the movie, and I said, so, nine point something million, that's good, isn't it? And Ross is screaming into the phone, it's tanking, the movie is tanking, and it's gonna take us all down with it. We're all ruined, we'll never work again. And he hung up. And that's when I started to worry a little bit. Wow, you're a good poker player. Uh, Bill Mechanic, who was one of the, uh, I think he was head of production of Fox at the time, was a great champion of the film. There's that incredible end sequence where the, the, the buildings are coming down while the Pixies are playing. All of those buildings are Fox properties because legally they could not show anyone else's property being destroyed. So they photoshopped every high rise that Rupert Murdoch owned and they put them all into the same giant translite, the largest translite that's ever been made for a movie. Incredible. Mechanic said it was my F you to Fox, uh, indubitably. Um, one of the actors who played Mechanic said the set was a hyper-masculine environment. I thought this was interesting. He said for every 40 men on the set, there was one woman. I think in terms of the mores, I think that's how Hollywood is in a, in, a, in a deranged sense. You know, I don't, did you ever, 
hear that from the Vox Populi about the masculinity of the making of it or the reception of it? Did you ever get that blowback? Because 1999 is a different fray than now. No, you know, the only thing I was ever aware of, the first time I ever read the short story, which became chapter six, which was the kind of genesis of the entire Fight Club concept. And I wrote it more or less in one sitting at work. And I was asked to read a short story as part of a program in, 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 a, in a lesbian bookstore. So I go in not realizing this is a lesbian bookstore and I'm supposed to read a story as, with several other people and I'm facing this audience of several dozen women and I'm thinking they are gonna so hate this story. And I went ahead and I read it and they loved it. And they said, is there one of these for women? <laughs> and I realized it wasn't just a guy's story that a lot of people would relate to the story. Um, and that, that gave me some hope. One other thing, I asked Chuck to pick a couple of scenes that had an interesting resonance. Why did you choose those scenes? You know, you know in a way, so much of Fight Club is based on, um, is based on the Bible, to tell the truth. You know, I wanted to use rules as a structuring device, as a transitional device, and that really harkened back to the, to the Ten Commandments. Uh, I'm all katolisha, ima katolisha. And I wanted to use the lamentations from the Bible too. I love the lamentations. So that we have all these lines about, you know, deliver me from Swedish furniture, deliver me from clever art, deliver me, may I never be perfect and complete. That there's these very much lamentation and prayer lines throughout the book. And I really wanted Tyler Durden to occur as this Christ-like character that was reminding people of their mortality and kind of reminding them that they had a destiny despite how little they actually believed in it. Mm. And I think that it, it occurs for people in this religious way because it uses these, these very biblical forms like Steinbeck used in, uh, in The Grapes of Wrath. People recognize that cadence because they're familiar with it. They just don't know where they know it from. Fight Club. This was mine and Tyler's gift, our gift to the world. I look around, I look around, I see a lot of new faces. <laughs> Shut up! Which means a lot of you have been breaking the first two rules of Fight Club. Man, I see in Fight Club the strongest and smartest men who've ever lived. I see all this potential, and I see a squander. God damn it, an entire generation pumping gas, waiting tables, slaves with white collars. Advertising has us chasing cars and clothes, working jobs we hate so we can buy shit we don't need. We're the middle children of history, man. No purpose or place. We have no great war, no great depression. Our great war is a spiritual war. Our great depression our lives. We've all been raised on television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars, but we won't. We're slowly learning that fact. And we're very, very pissed off. Yeah. First rule of Fight Club is, you do not talk about you. 
Yeah. There's a sign on the front that says Lou's Tap. I'm fucking Lou. Who the fuck are you? Tyler Durden. It's interesting, and also something that never gets spoken about or doesn't get spoken about enough. The film also inspired people to change their lives. And I mean that not in a heavy-handed way, but maybe I do, that people were going back to school, people were taking on different career paths. In addition to, oh, a, fight, a real fight club is starting, or they're really doing pranks. People were, it wasn't all pejorative. There were people doing right because of the movie. Is, is that too cute, or is, did you find that as well in your travels after the movie? You know, it's really hard to say that they were doing it before, as, after as opposed to before, because so much of the movie was actually based on my friends and what people I knew in the Cacophony Society were doing in terms of what they called at the time cultural jamming, where you went up and you doctored a billboard so that it would say something totally different, or you, you did these very anti-consumerist, anti-sort of capitalist stunts and pranks yeah. on the whole city. Um, and so, so much of Project Mayhem was based on what my friends were already doing. In a way, Fight Club just kind of brought it to the fore and, uh, and dulled the cat, as people say. And by recognizing it, it, maybe it brought more people to doing those things or brought them to an awareness of their own lives. But people had that before. On a long enough timeline, the survival rate for everyone drops to zero. Stop, what are you doing? Come on. Can't find your back? God. Give me your wallet. Raymond K. Hustle, 1320 Southeast Banning, Apartment A. Small cramped basement apartment, Raymond. How did you know? Because they give shitty basement apartments letters instead of numbers. Raymond, you're going to die. Is that your mom and dad? Mom and dad are going to have to call up kindly Dr. So-and-so. Pick up your dental records, want to know why. Because there's going to be nothing left to face. Oh, come on. Come An expired on. community college student ID. What'd you study, Raymond? Stuff. Stuff? Where the midterms are? Oh. I asked you what you studied. Biology mostly. Why? I don't know. What did you want to be, Raymond K. Hessel? The question, Raymond, was what did you want to be? Answer him, Raymond. Jesus. Veterinarian. Veterinarian. Animals. Yeah, animals. So Good stuff. Yeah, I got that. That means you have to get more schooling. Too much school. Would you rather be dead? No. Would you rather die here on your knees in the back of a convenience store? Keeping your license. Gonna check in on you. I know where you live. If you're not on your way to becoming a veterinarian in six weeks, you will be dead. Now run on home. Run, Force, run! I feel ill. Imagine how he feels. Come on, this isn't funny. That wasn't funny. What the fuck was the point of that? Tomorrow will be the most beautiful day of Raymond Castle's life. His breakfast will taste better than any meal you and I have ever tasted. You had to give it to him. Come on. He had a plan. And it started to make sense in a Tyler sort of way. No fear. 
no distractions. The ability to let that which does not matter truly slide. But the, to wit, there was a real, real, you know, there were fight clubs, it seems like, actually happening. And it begs a question. Around the time the movie was going to be released, the release got pushed to a man. It was because of Columbine. Fox said it's not because of Columbine. It's because we want Fincher to have more time to get the cut ready. Fincher, by all accounts, was there was some pushback. But he actually said something recently. Fox had a reason to be trepidatious. I guess my question is this. Can a movie be dangerous? Bear with me for a second. I was also thinking about Clockwork Orange. Mm. Around the time there were copycat murders, and we've had this in other movies. An interesting thing about Clockwork that I want to throw to you, Clockwork Orange was taken out of cinemas in London uh, when it was released in 1971. A lot of people get this part of the story wrong. They think Warner Brothers took it out of the cinemas. They didn't. Kubrick did. Kubrick decided the movie should be taken out of cinemas because his family was getting death threats. I read into it one thing, and I have a question for you. One thing I think of is it's not the worst thing in the world when art is dangerous, especially movies. Movies need a little danger. You know, there's something about that, those tea leaves. What do you make of this? Do you think Fight Club was ever a dangerous offering as a work of art? And if so, what's the, the good lining in that? What's the silver in that? You know, there was certain rules that Fight Club in itself could not violate. And that was, number one, the rule of consent. It had to be structured, consensual, everything, violence. There were aspects of property damage in Project Mayhem, but no one was supposed to be uh, victimized. Yeah. So really the turning point in the novel is when the narrator sees Marla with a black eye and he realizes that he himself has hit Marla. And that's when the whole thing sours for him in the book. Yeah. It doesn't happen in the movie. Also in the book, there is the, the huge transgression of deceiving a community of dying people, people with fatal illnesses, into thinking that you yourself share their illness and that kind of acceptance of nurturing without reciprocating it. I'm gonna allow you to care for me and I'm gonna deceive you into caring for me while I don't have to reciprocate that care for you. But Fincher did not have enough time to do it in the movie. And that was really the biggest, biggest uh, regret. In and of itself, was this ever a dangerous film? I did not think so because I felt that since everything was consensual, structured, responsibly presented, it wasn't really glorifying the victimization of other people. That, that's the word Kubrick used. He felt at some point Clockwork Orange was irresponsible. Well, the home invasion scene that includes the rape in Clockwork Orange generated several home invasions that did have violent rapes. And I thought that was the big, you know, the big protest against Clockwork Orange. Um, I want to get to questions and then we'll wrap it up with a couple of questions. Anything, it can be about the book, the board game, the, the, the uh, ballet, uh, anything uh, to Chuck? Yeah, sir. Uh, one of the strange of the film is the sound, the music. Uh, not only the last song from Pixies, but all the soundtrack, the OST. I had the CD, I bought the CD. What do you think about that? And do you hear music when you write or after you write it? 
so during the filming, I was I asked David uh, what he was going to use as, as a soundtrack, and uh, I think they always regretted that Trent Reznor wasn't available to do it, or didn't feel like he had the skill to do it at the time. But David said rather than having uh, a soundtrack of music, he wanted to use. It was just like a kind of collection of noises, everyday noises and sounds that were sort of cut together and recorded as if they were a symphony. And so he wanted to have this kind of a vocabulary of different noises and sound effects that would be associated with each character. He said, for instance, whenever Marla comes into a scene, I want to have a little wavering faint aria, a little bit of opera playing every time Marla comes into a scene. And so rather than have a sound, uh, a soundtrack of, of music songs, he wanted it predominantly to be these strange noises that would be associated with each character. Amazing. And so it's a, sound, a soundtrack of noises. It's, it's operatic, you know, light motifs. Uh, they eventually, as you know, and you may probably know, um, the Dust Brothers did the score. Fincher said something interesting. He said, and if you'll never hear the first song the same way. He said, I wanted the first song to, to seem like there was a bee in your ear and you couldn't get rid of it. One of the great descriptions. He also said to the Dust Brothers, I want the music to sound as if two white guys who are not cool at all think they're cool. Other questions for Chuck? When I, when I read the book, I perceive it as super critical towards culture. If you look at society and think like, oh my God, what the fuck is going on? What is, what is culture doing? What is uh, advertising doing to the world? Did that make sense, the question? No, I know it made total sense. Oh. Um, and I would never deign <laughs> to criticize the culture. No. No, no, seriously. I'm, who am I? I, I am a guy from a blue collar family who got a really lousy degree in journalism and couldn't get a job. So he ended up building trucks at Freightliner and got stuck there for 13 years and then started writing fiction uh, with a guy who taught four students around his kitchen table. So who am I to criticize the culture? What I was doing was I really wanted to make fun of the stupid things that I was doing. I had the Ikea catalog in my desk, and the saddest thing is all my friends had the Ikea catalog in their desks. And we would look through them the way we used to dream of toys at Christmas. And at lunch, everyone would talk about what Ikea thing that they were gonna try to save up and buy. And that's the only roadmap we had for adulthood was buying the furniture that adults would have. And I realized how really sad and unexamined that was, but I was really setting out just to make fun of it in myself. I didn't want to make fun of my friends, but I wanted to make fun of the fact that, that I knew so little about what it was to be an adult that I thought if I just bought adult things, I would be a grown up. And so I was always just making fun of myself. One of the cool riffs from Ed, Edward and, and Brad were the Volkswagen Beetle was back in 1999. I don't know if you remember, there was this whole push of how cool, this is the new Beetle. So there's that great scene when they're banging on the, the Beetle because I guess the guys went on these long jags about what's the common 
crap were being sold. But I'll, I'll call you on one thing, though. I tell my filmmakers that every film is a documentary. Avengers Part 20 is a documentary. <laughs> is this film journalism? My writing teacher said that everything is a diary. Everything you write, regardless of how you try to mask it or disguise it, is you writing your diary. And so if you accept that, then you're allowed to write about what you want to write about. Right. You cannot escape writing about yourself in some way. And so in a way, I wanted to write about, you know, that would glorify who my friends were at that point in their lives. Because we had all reached the point where every time we would go to a party, the most common phrase was, oh, this one time in college, oh, this one time in university. <laughs> and it seemed as if all of our really happy, fun times that happened while we were in university. And it seemed like the rest of our lives were, were just gonna be boredom compared to this, this short, glorious period that had come before. And I wasn't ready to accept that. So I really, I wanted to recognize the fun that my friends were still having. And I wanted to find a way to keep generating those times that we would always remember. And Cacophony Society became a big part of that. And then documenting Cacophony Society through Project Mayhem. Um, and quoting my friends with every line that went into the book and later the movie. And then taking my friends to the making of the movie. And once, one morning before we went to the set to see them shooting that day, we went to breakfast and there was a waiter that we had had every week a guy named Charlie, and he had shaved his head. And we said, Charlie, you had such great hair, why'd you shave your head? And he said, because at night, I'm working on a movie. I have a small part in this movie they're making called Fight Club. <laughs> and I play a waiter in the movie, and I had to shave my head. And it became so meta and fantastic and surrealistic to be sitting there with my friends who had been waiters and it shaved their heads and we were watching a movie being made about our lives and we were being served by a waiter who had shaved his head who was playing a waiter in the movie about us. It was so wonderful. Did you say to him, clean food only, please? No, we just, <laughs> I, I was so freaked out. It was so dream sequence that I just let it pass. That's amazing. But he's the guy in the movie where he leans over the sink and they use dog clippers and they cut his hair off. That was our waiter at Eat Well in Santa Monica. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, I'm a big fan of your book and of your work. And I guess short question, um, where do you see self-improvement as a part of a meaningful life after 20 years of Fight Club? Self-improvement is an extension of the self that you were taught to be as a very obedient child who was promised that if you went to school and you got certain grades and you went to college and got certain grades and you played the game in a very certain specific way, you were guaranteed success. You were guaranteed that you would achieve this fantastic goal. But then toward the end of your 20s and your early 30s, you realize that that is just not gonna happen that everybody's been fed the same roadmap, the same formula for how to get there. And you're all gonna kind of plateau at about the same point. And at that point, 
it becomes Soren Kierkegaard, and you realize, I have got to either live in inauthenticity, or I've got to throw away this useless roadmap, and I've got to start to sort of break some rules in order to achieve something better than everyone else is going to settle for. And so self-improvement is just an extension of who you were taught to be. And at some point you have to begin creating that self rather than having it dictated to you. Uh, that's the distinction I see there. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, other questions? Yes, a miss in the front uh, with the stripe. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks. Um, I was wondering about Fight Club 2 because the sequel to your, to your novel is a graphic novel. I was wondering what made you choose this medium because it's, it's very different, right, from the, from the novel or from the film. The book and the film eventually gathered such a really passionate audience that I knew if I tried to continue the story in either form, whatever I did was going to be compared directly to the, to the previous iteration. And so in order to really have as much freedom as possible, I had to find a different medium. And I also wanted to collaborate. I wanted to be able to work with people. And Portland, the city where I live, is filled with comic book artists and editors and letterers and colorists. And so it's a very easy city to, be, to do comics in. And my publisher in the US, Dark Horse, is also in Portland. So there are things that I could do in comics that if they were done literally in a film, for instance, the army of dying children that all have uh, progeria, if you actually depicted an army of dying children in a film, that would be the end of it. No one would go a step further. It's so tragic. But you have enough wiggle room, enough unreality in comics that you can depict things that, that would be too much to bear and people will accept them and, and continue with the story. So comics gave me that unreality, but it also wasn't film and it wasn't a book. So it gave me a freshness that, that I wouldn't have if I'd gone with either of the other medium. Just a couple more thoughts to wrap up on. Um, Ed Norton said he went to a see a concert at the Los Angeles Staples Center in 2000, and two people came up to him and said, um, it's good to see you outside, sir. <laughs> and Norton smiled, he said, you know, they're getting it. Uh, I do think there are movies that stay with us over time. I know that's on the nose. Agnostic to taste, even though I love Fight Club. Do you buy and do you want and do you think this movie will outlive us, you and I, forget them, because they're young, they have a chance. You know, that's never really the goal. The goal is just to have fun in the moment. My writing teacher always said, you should have a, a great deal of fun doing the writing because it's the only guarantee reward that you will ever get. Uh, you may never sell your work. Your work may never find any kind of recognition. So if you have fun as you're doing it, that's enough. Other than that, I have this weird theory that to, uh, to have a lasting legacy, you have to have one well-received novel and one very well-received short story. And with Fight Club and with the story Guts, I kind of have my legacy. I feel like Shirley Jackson, who had The Haunting of Hill House and Lottery, 
And I'd written Guts as a, react, as a response to the lottery because when Shirley Jackson published the lottery, people were so outraged that hundreds of people canceled their subscriptions to the magazine in which it was published. And I thought, what would a short story have to do these days to enrage people that much? And that was my goal with, uh, with writing Guts. And hundreds of people canceled their subscription to The Guardian. So speaking of Guts 2018 in closing, uh, not to date us or timestamp us, but 2018 was a, it, it, there was a lot going on for you in your life personally, losses, financial losses. One of the good things that, that came out of it was uh, I found out from my screen agent that for 20 years, my book agent had asked him never to present movie work to me, that I was never to be offered any movie or television work. So last year, it turned out the accountant at the agency in New York that represented my literary rights, my book rights, uh, he'd been embezzling for 20 years. And I just thought that my income was dwindling. And in fact, this man was taking more and more until last year, he more or less took my entire income. And he disappeared. He's since gone to prison. There's no money to recover. But the man in Los Angeles who represents my film screen rights called me and he said, for 20 years, we've been getting requests for you to write movies and television and to revise scripts and do this very lucrative work. And your book agent has denied me the rights to present this work to you because he wants to keep you writing books. He doesn't want you to move to writing scripts. So now, now that your book agent is gone, I have all this fantastic film and television opportunities for you. And so now we've got at least two television shows in the works and I'm gonna be able to join the Writers Guild and get health insurance. And, and I still have two books coming out next year. And uh, it's, it's like a brand new fresh start. It's so much fun. And it's funny because one of the television projects is with a, a production company that in 1999 was a very small production company called Rock, Paper, Scissors. And they did all the promotion for Fight Club. So I met them in 1999 when we were all 20 years younger. And now me and Kent and Angus, who are now 20 years older, are sitting down and doing a television show together. And so it's so funny the way this has come full circle back to the same group of people and an even greater opportunity. For all those in the audience and sitting here who wondered anecdotally or actively, that guy who wrote Fight Club and, and helped deliver this film, there's gotta be more. There's so much more and more and you're free. The book gave you freedom, but the loss gave you Uber freedom, that's German too. That's my only other German word. You have Uber freedom. So like Al Jolson said in 1927, you ain't heard nothing yet. Uh, I'm happy for you, man. You're a survivor and happy birthday. 20 years. Chuck Palahniuk, everybody. Thank you, Thank you everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Stop. I want to thank Chuck Polinick for being here with us today on Murmur. 
I want to thank you for being here with us today on Murmur, but you can be with us anytime on Murmur. Download the show, subscribe to the show, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio. The website is murmurradio.com, Instagram, Twitter, at MSF Murmur. Follow us if you have a subject you would like me to pair with a guest on the show. Email me directly, murmurradio at gmail.com. I will give you full credit. I'll, I'll bring you on to listen. Anything is possible. Where is your mind? See ya.